Here we are. Okay, now that we've heard all that, um, we're going to take a look at an intricate halachic sugya, which really deserves five or six or seven shiurim, without a doubt. So we're going to take a little slice of it because it shows up in Yoma, and it's kind of a strange thing, but it's a it's a what we call a shas sugya, because it is a sugya topic that devolves in all sorts of different areas of halacha. Um, and one of the we're gonna we're gonna see three examples of different places that it shows up, partially because some of those examples are invoked in our sugya, and partially because they're just great ways to illustrate the conceptual development. But we're also gonna see something interesting happening in the transformation of a text uh, along the way. So without further ado, let's get rolling. As always, we start with the text of the Tanakh. And because our parak in Yoma, in all the prakim that were in the middle of till the last parak, all deal with a description, a blow-by-blow -blow sequential description of the Kohen Gadol's activities on the day, Remember, Yoma means Hayom, and Hayom is Yom HaKippurim. Uh, and the point at which this discussion becomes relevant is when the, um, when the Kohen Gadol leaves the Kodesh Kodashim with the Dam HaSair, and I'm going to go over all this in a second, uh, and goes into the Kodesh. So just a very quick synopsis. The Kohen Gadol, who does everything that day, <coughs> Um, and this is actually a relevant point thing to point out, who has not slept all night and who, of course, is fasting and who is very like the elderly, if not downright geezerdom. Um, and that becomes a consideration of the halakha here. Uh, has to do all of the avodah. Now, after he's changed into the white garments to do the avodah pnim, as we call it, the inner avodah, he um, does vidui on his par. He then um, goes and does the lottery on the two goats. He then goes back to his par and does another lottery, uh, does another vidui, sorry, a vidui for himself and for all the koanim, and shechts the par, because he has to do all the avodah. In the middle of the shechita, after he's done minimal shechita, another coin takes over, and then he grabs the cup, and he does kabbalat adam, and the dam par, which is a lot of deep red blood, comes into the coast. He then gives it to another Kohen who sits in and stirs it, stands and stirs it to make sure it doesn't coagulate while he goes to the next step. The next step is he gets the Ketoret. And we're not going to go into the details about the Ketoret because that we dealt with that in, in, in detail. But once he's got the Ketoret, he then walks into the Beit HaMikdash, three different opinions about what side of the Beit HaMikdash in, inside he walks in. Does it on the extreme right, the right, or the left? He then walks and goes through and behind the parochet and the circles back because there's two parochot, he's to court in Chachamim, and he comes into the Kodesh Kodashim and he puts down the censer, puts the Ketoret into it, and immediately the whole place fills with smoke, and that's the cloud of the Ketoret. Okay. He then backs out the same way he came, we talked about that, and then he goes and gets the Dam Hapar, and this is where things get interesting for us. As we learned in our sugya. He needs to come into the Kodesh Kodashim with the Dam Hapar, that's the blood of the bull, and he has to flick it towards where the Aron would have been if it were still there, in an upwardly fashion one time and in a downward fashion seven times. And then 
he goes out from the Kodesh Kodeshim, but he's still inside the building, to the Kodesh. And he puts that dam down in a basin. And then he goes back outside, shechts the goat that was selected in the lottery to be an, the one that comes in, and does Kabbalat Adam, and walks inside and does the exact same thing, one up, seven down, in the Kodesh Kodeshim, and then he walks into the Kodesh. Now, the next thing he's going to have to do is to do the same one up, seven down with the Dam Hapar, then one up, seven down with the Dam Sair inside the Kodesh, but outside the Kodesh Kodoshim. In that order, one up, seven down, Par, then one up, seven down, Sair. The order here is critical, and the fact that they'd be separated is critical here. And that is where we get to. So, so we they have that, two separate coasts. Two separate coasts, so exactly. And by the way, from the for, to, to, to anybody, it would seem very clear which is which, because a bull has way more blood than a goat, and evidently a bull's blood, according to the way Chazal read it, and I don't know any better, is uh, deeper red. So it should be obvious, even if the amounts were the same and the amounts aren't even close, which is which. But that leads to our problem that we'll we'll look at. Now the pasuk says as follows: the source source one. He's now in the Kodesh Kodoshim and he flicks with his finger in the fashion you could see that I'm doing, like this, upwards, and then downwards seven times. And remember the count, one, one, and one, one, and two, etc. Then he comes out and shechts the Sa'ir, and he brings the dam beyond inside the parochet, which means Kodesh Kodoshim, and he, again, does the same exact thing as he did with the par, one up, seven down. Beautiful. Now, by the way, so far, that's this is not even our problem. This is just the setup. Now for the problem. He then does atonement or protection on the Kodesh. The Kodesh is the part of the Beit HaMikdash that's not the Kodesh Kodeshim. To cleanse it from all the impurities, etc. And this is what he has to do, meaning he does the same thing that he did inside the Kodesh Kodoshim, out in the Kodesh. All right, there we go. So now, to put that all together, what he has to do is in the Kodesh Kodoshim, it's bull, bull blood, one up, seven down, Goat blood, one up, seven down, in exactly the order I said it. Then in the Kodesh, bull up, bull blood up one, down seven, goat blood up, down one, seven, in that order, and not mixing them. Okay. Now that would all be very easy if the way he were to do it were to be take the Dhammapar and do everything with the Dhammapar and be finished with it and spill it out where it goes in the Isod and then do the goat. That would be fine. But he's not doing that. He's doing one up, seven down bowl, and then bringing the dam hapar and putting it in a basin in the Kodesh. Then he goes outside, shechs the goat, comes in with the goat all the way inside, one up, seven down, and comes out. And now he's got to switch uh, flasks. All right, and here we go. We're picking up the, the Mishnah in source two at that exact point when he has done the dam hapar and he's gone outside He's put the, the remaining Dhammapar in a basin uh, in the Kodesh, and he's gone outside into the courtyard to Shech the Sa'ir. 
Rabban Malkom Shamad, Izamenu Achat Lamal Meshav Lamatan. So very quickly, the Mishnah gets him back inside. He does one up, seven down. Just like with the par, it's supposed to look like a straight line. The Chachayamone, and the Mishnah does this. This is I didn't put the three dots in. The Mishnah does this. Chachayamone, you know, Achat Biachat, Achat Biachat, Achat Shnayim, etc. Right? Yatsavi Nichol Alkana Sheni Shayabaychal. Now he comes out to the Kodesh, and he puts the Dama Sayir in a second basin. So there's two basins. One basin for the Dama Par, one basin for the Dama Sayir. And then you know what he's going to do next. He's going to then pick up the Dama Par, which has been sitting there for a few minutes, and, and do the Hazaot. He's going to put it down, take out from the second basin the Dama Sayir and do its Hazaot. Right? Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Lo Hayasham Ela Kan Echad Bilvad. It was only one basin. Now, if there's only one basin, that means what's the coin gadol going to have to do? He's going to come out with the dama sa'ir. There's one cup in one basin. So he's going to have to first take out the dama par, then put in the dama sa'ir in the one basin that's there. On the other hand, the chachamim's position is he comes out with the dama sa'ir and puts it in, and now they're both sitting there. And then he picks up the other one. And the question is, of course, why? So now, a priori, before going any further, when you take a look at Rabbi Yehuda's dissenting opinion, saying there was only one basin, the simplest reason that you would say that Rabbi Yehuda says it is that I have a tradition. My Rebbe was Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva met people who worked in the Beit HaMikdash, and they knew some Kohanim, and they said there was two, there's only one basin in there. But Rabbi Yehuda never invokes tradition for this, and the Gemara doesn't invoke it for him. So that means the disagreement is not based on some tradition of what was there, but about what could have or could not have been there. So there's something else going on. All right. And before going ahead, we're going to take a look at um, a seemingly unrelated Mishnah. But this is background for our sugya. The Mishnah in Masachat Shkalim. Masachat Shkalim is devoted to one topic with just like Yoma, uh, with lots of tangents, because almost any time that we talk about the Mikdash, there's just room for all sorts of tangents about other Mikdash-related things, etc. So the Mishnah in Parak Vav, which talks about 13 of this and 13 of that, and also the 13s that were in the courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash, 13 uh, gates, etc. One of them is Toshasar Shofar Mikdash. There were 13 stalker boxes, basically. And each one had something written. I don't know if you, how many of you have seen this, um, I haven't seen it so much in the States. I've seen it very prominently in Eretz Israel, where you go to give tzedakah and there's a bunch of boxes or slots and each one has something written next to it. All right, where I, where in the old shul in Alon Shvut, which is where I daven usually when I'm there, there's in the back, there's a whole row of slots and it's Gmud Chesed, Berakabayit, Avotu Banim, Gmach for Kalot, Mikvah, you name it. You can support almost any institution in the world right there in, in, the, in the shul. And so the same thing here. There were 13 boxes, and they had something written on them, meaning you're putting money in because you're donating for a particular cause. Taklin chadatin, which means new shkalim. Taklin atikin, old shkalim. Kinim gozale olah. One said kinim, which is nests. One said gozale olah, birds that are used for an olah. Eitzim, money that you're contributing towards wood of the Beit HaMikdash. Livona, money that you're contributing to be spent on the frankincense that goes on Menachot. 
zahav lakaporet. If you want to uh, uh, support the you, the gold that's needed to refurbish the kaporet, the cover of the aron. Of course, this is odd because then this aron was not there in the second Beit Hamikdash. And shishal nedava. So that's seven plus another six to just say nedava, kind of general fund. Okay. And now they explain. What are the new the new shkalim? Uh, that's the ones every year that in Adar you bring up so that starting on Nisan, we have a new fund of shkalim. Atikin, what are the old ones? So somebody shows up in Adar and they never brought sent their shkalim the last year. They put that in and we use it up in the next two weeks. So it's part of this year's gift. Right? Right. Kinim hein torin. So kinim. The, the one that says kinim nests refers to the older turtle doves. Gozaleola are reference to the other kind of birds with the younger ones. Kulam olot. There's two kind of turtle doves that are brought in this back. That's it. And they are all olot. Divrei Rabbi Yehuda. Now, there's an interesting thing. Is that Rabbi Yehuda, who is the star of today's shear, here expresses an opinion that there are, there are boxes in the Mikdash that have writing on them. And that means that we're relying on the writing that when somebody puts something in, they're paying attention to what it says. And when the Kohanim take the, or the Gizbarim take the money out, they're paying attention to what it says and using it for the right thing. And Rabbi Yehuda here, by the way, says that all of the money has to be um, olot, which means these are all voluntary offerings. One quick word about birds. If you bring birds to the Mikdash, you're always bringing two or multiples of two. They always come in a cane in a nest, and one is a chatat and one's an olah. The classic example is a woman who gave birth and doesn't have the money for the proper korban. In the less expensive version, she could bring a nest. Cane, you'll let it. The nest of a, 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 a prurient woman, without somebody pronounce it for me correctly, right? A woman has just given birth. And the uh, and either when she buys them, it says that's a chatat, that's an olah, which is a really dumb idea because chances are really good you're gonna get mixed up and then they both have to be killed and you have to get other ones, or you leave them unspecified and give it to the coin. And when the coin processes them and he picks which is which, that's the best better way to go. But one of those two points got to be decided now. That means that I'm fulfilling my obligation. On the other hand, if I want to donate to the Beit HaMikdash, I can donate money for birds, and the birds are all olot. I can't bring a chatat as a voluntary offering. They're all olot, and they're voluntary. Okay, why does Rabbi Yud insist they'd be voluntary? We'll see. And that's going to be the nut around which Hashir is going to revolve. The Chachamim Omrim, Kinim, they disagree with Rabbi Yehuda. Echad chatat vechad The box that said Kinim means people are actually fulfilling their obligation. A woman who just gave birth shows up. And she puts in four shkalim in there, two per bird, and expects them to take the money out and bring one chatat and one olah to fulfill her obligation. The other box that says gozale olah are all olot. In other words, everybody seems to agree here on what was written on the box. What they disagree about is how to interpret it. The word kinim, nests, <coughs> explained in the simple traditional way that it means two birds, which are for the obligation. One is a chatat, one's an olah, and a person has an obligation, puts the money in and they fulfill it. And uh, and gozale olah, that's voluntary ones. Rabbi Yudah says they're all voluntary. And the only way, and the only distinction is one's this kind of bird, one's that kind of bird. So Rabbi Yudah does not allow for there being an obligation paid through this box. You got to bring the birds themselves and bring them to the coin and, uh, and hand them to them. Okay, we'll see what that's about. Now, 
let's see, there's a little background. The Tosefta on that Mishnah says, So if a woman puts in her money, this is Chachamim, puts her money into the box, that night she can already eat Korbanot. What does that mean? That means that if she put her money into that box, that day they already spent it on birds and offered up her birds. And by the way, once her birds are brought, after the proper amount of time has passed, she can already eat Kodshim. So she can rely that that day they, they did it. In other words, according to this position, every day they would take the box and whatever was in it, they would spend it on what it was, what it was including obligatory. Rabbi Yehuda Omer lo haya shofar lekinin. Rabbi Yehuda disagrees. And here it's more explicit. There was no box for the obligatory offering. Meaning you want to bring an obligatory offering, which you have to do, bring the birds. Don't put the money in a box and it'll be processed kind of anonymously, right? Why is that? Ta'aruvot means mixtures. And it almost always means mixtures that are problematic. What is he talking about? What mixtures are problematic? What is he referring to? So we have to see. Now, important note. The Talmud Bavli which is what we're studying. And this is an interesting note for the whole Dafyomi process. The Talmud Bavli is, does not include discussions about every Masachet of Mishnah. As you all know, in Seder Zerayim, there's only one Masachet to which there's a Talmud, and it's Brachot. All the rest, Peyad, Demai, Kilaim, etc., etc., all of the Masachot that have to do with agriculture, there's no Bavli. There's no Bavli. Right? And we can sort of understand why. There were chutzlarts, and those mitzvot only apply in Israel. There may be some other reasons. There's no bavli. Moed, nashim, and nizikin, there is bavli. Of course, masachet Shabbat, hu-hu, masachet Eruvin, we just done these, masachet Pesachim, masachet Yoma, even things that are not currently relevant, like Yoma, which is about the Beit HaMikdash, and Pesachim, half of which is about the Korban Pesach, there's still a very rich Babylonian discussion in the Talmud Bavli. Okay. The one exception to that rule is Masachet Shkalim. Masachet Shkalim, there's no Bavli. But interesting, there is, of course, a Talmud Yerushalmi. Because there's Yerushalmi on a lot of things, there's not a Bavli, like all of Zerayim. But the Talmud Yerushalmi and Shkalim, uniquely, is a little bit strange. And by the way, one, the first thing is, I'll point it out to you because you all know this. The Talmud Yerushalmi and Shkalim is printed in the Bavli. Some of you may have used it for, for Dafyomi. You had a, a thick psachim, and a backup psachim was machazachet shkalim, with what looked like a regular Talmud Bavli, but it told it's Talmud Yerushalmi. Okay, I'm going to show you that it's even more problematic than that. Take a look at this. Here's the Talmud Yerushalmi from the Venice print, the first print of the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Venice print of the Yerushalmi um, on shkalim. Tani, Amar Rabbi Yehuda, shofar shalkinim so they're quoting the Tosefta here. Shema what's the Tarovet? Watch this. Shema Tamut Achat Mehen. Because what if one of the of the owners dies? Now, what's the rule about a chatat when the owner of the chatat dies? What has to happen? Mm-hmm. No, the, the chatat. If the, oh, chatat <laughs> the owner of a chatat dies. I set aside a chatat. And before it got offered, I died. What happened? I think that the uh, the chatat has to be killed, but he's not right. a chatat. That's right. 
And what if instead I set aside money and the famous thing, and Nazir sets aside money for all his korbanot and includes sets aside 20 shkalim for his chatat and he dies before he can go and get shaved. What happens? What does that money happen? That money it has to be destroyed. Right? So they're explaining what did Rabbi Yudah mean by tarovet is let's say you have a box in the Beit HaMikdash where everybody who owes a korban the birds puts their money in. So a thousand women come and put in four shkalim each, right? Two shkalim per bird, four shkalim each. And we're going to have a thousand korbanot. Beautiful. A thousand pairs. Two thousand korbanot. I make up the number. I'll take it 200, more realistic. Okay. hundred women come in and they each put in four shkalim. There's 400 shkalim here, 200 korbanot, 200 birds, a hundred pairs of birds. Beautiful. And now it turns out that one of the women dies before we can process it. What do we do with the money? See the problem? So Rabbi Yehuda says, therefore, we can't have a box for Chovot. Because what happens if one of the people who contributed to it dies, the whole box is out. Now let's see how that plays out. But we have a brighter that says if a woman had kids, had a kid, and now she comes and or she voluntarily says, I'm bringing a cane, right? She brings the money and puts it in the box, and she can eat kodshim that night. And she doesn't have to worry that the coin was lazy and didn't bring a korban that day. They bring all the korbanot that day. And the coin doesn't have to worry that perhaps the, one of the contributors died. A hundred people came and put their money in, and the coin doesn't have to say, you know what, what if one of those hundred people dropped dead in Yerushalayim today? He doesn't have to worry about that. They put the money in in the morning. He's offering them up in the afternoon. He doesn't have to raise that concern. He can offer them all up and everything's good. And here's where we get strange. He Kamrina, notice I changed the font and the, and the color and the shading and everything. <laughs> no, our problem is not looking at the box and saying, what happened if maybe somebody died? What's our general rule in halacha about status of life? A general rule in halakha is status of life is you're alive until we know you're dead. And therefore, for instance, if somebody is in Spain, take it Talmudic times, somebody's in Spain and they, uh, and they send a korban with Nigel. Nigel's in Spain because Nigel's a world traveler and he's going to Yerushalayim. He says, you're going to Yerushalayim here. Please take this money for me and buy a khatat. This is khatat money I set aside because I was Mahal Shabbos. Here's money for me. Go to Yerushalayim and make a, bring a korban. And the guy's in his late 80s. And Nigel has to, it turns out, it takes three months to get to Shalim. He gets to Shalim. Does he have to worry that the guy in his 80s dropped dead in the meantime and he can't bring the korban? No, because unless he knows differently, alive is alive. So same thing here. When do we say it's a problem? Here's a hundred women who showed up in your shalim today and they put their money in the box mm. and one of them dropped dead. But the only problem is her coins look like everybody else's coins. So what's the problem? We yeah, have um, what? Yeah, the Yam Hamela. We have, say it again? Yeah, the dead, yes, give it to the Dead Sea. You have to throw but, them out. But, but what's the problem is there's four coins in here that are no good, right? Among right. the hundred. And the right. problem is we don't know which four they are. So that's what you says. That's the Tarovit. So let's say, let's see what it says. 
And if you say, okay, so take four coins out of Nigel, I think that's what you were mentioning for. Take four coins out of the box and throw them in the river. You got 996 coins and 99 of the women will have their korban. It'll be fine. The answer, the answer is in general, we say Rabbi Yehuda, late, late Brera. Rabbi Yehuda rejects the idea of Brera, which is what this whole shear is about. What's Brera? So I don't know yet. But before we deal at that, I want you to show you, I want to show you why I marked this so weird. The language, Kika Amrinan, this phrase, Kika Amrinan, doesn't show up in Yerushalmi elsewhere. It's not used in Yerushalmi. It's not part of Yerushalmi talk. Right? Ba'alma as saying in general, also not Yushalmi talk, right? Um, even the kuf before the word, which we're very familiar with in, in Aramean and Babylonian Aramaic, like Kamashvalan and Kahadrele, not Yushalmi. But the other thing is that the word Brera, the notion of Brera shows up nowhere in Talmud Yushalmi except here. So I saw this and I got a little interested. So I decided to take a look at the one manuscript we have of the Yerushalmi, the famous Leiden manuscript. We've seen hundreds of, dozens of times already. Look at the Leiden manuscript. Here it is. Here's the statement. And now watch where it ends. Follow my, can you all see my, where the pointer is? See, that's right there, the end of the blue. And that's the end of the paragraph. What's on the side here? He kamrinan da da da. Rabbi Yehuda lately bray right. In other words, this whole line here isn't part of the Yushalmi. It's part of a margin note. We call a Hagaha. What happened when it came to the Venice print? They looked at the Tavia Leiden and they put it into the text. And so this, which is really a comment based on the Bavli, gets in here, but doesn't belong in the Yushalmi. I'm going to comment on this at the end of this year. But just pointing this out. Okay. Now, one last thing to keep in mind, which is actually something we've already said. I mean, actually, we don't have to. These are the sources. Source 7 and 8 are, sorry, source 7 is the source for the chataot metot. Right? And the famous thing where Bishimon says, chamesh chataot metot. It's in the yellow. There's five kinds of chataot that have to be killed. One of them is vlad chatat. A chatat is typically a you, a female. If she's pregnant and has a baby before you shechter, the baby has to be killed. Tumurat chatat, if you took your chatat and you swapped it and said, I'm taking this instead of that, tumurat. The one we care about is chatat shemetu ba'aleha. If the owner died before it was brought. Afshikipu ba'alim. Well, let's say that you lost your chatat, you got a different one instead, brought it, and then found the original one. Or v'shabrash natai, if it became more than a year old, which is the age for a chatat. Okay, but the point is chatat shemetu ba'aleha, there's the source. So now let's take a look at what's happening here. There, there is a box in the Beit HaMikdash among the Tzedakah boxes that says one single word, four letters, Kinim. It probably says three letters, Kuf Nun Mem, Kinim. And people put money in there. And now Chachamim say, you know what they put money in there for? All the women who had kids, all had babies, all the Zavim, all of the super poor, the poor Mitzorim, whoever it is who has to bring a cane, puts their money in there, and that very day the coin take all the money, and exactly half of it goes to Chataot, and the other half goes to Olot, and they fulfill everybody's obligation, and anybody who put their money in there by the end of the day can know that their obligation was fulfilled. That's Chachamim. 
Rebuta says, no, nah, that's not what it's for. It can't be for that because you can't have a box to put in obligatory money for a chatat because if it happens that one of those many donors drops dead, then the whole box is for fallen. So we say to Rabbi Yudah, what's the problem? You have a, you have a thousand, you have 400 shkalim in there representing 100 people. So what's wrong? One person died. Take four shkalim out, destroy them, and use the other 996 to bring 99 for my note. The answer is Rabbi Yudah does not accept the principle of Brera. What does Brera mean? So for right now, we'll define it as retroactive designation. We're not going to say anything more about it till we see the other two examples, the other three examples, and then we'll put it all together. Here's an example. And again, I, I want to highlight this because I want to show you how different the Bavli and Yushalmi are on this. This is the beginning of the third chapter of Gitin. Now there's a rule that a get must be written, must be written for the purpose of that man and that woman. In other words, there is a discussion in the Gemara, in the Mishnah, about Tofsei Gittin, writing, film, make, creating, let's say a software has a couple of weeks of no business. He fills, he creates a form, form Gittin so that you could just fill in the name and the, like those two both that they sell. Uh, we just fill in the name and the date and the city and everything else. That's a question whether we can do that. But to actually write a get before the husband has commissioned you and identified the name of his wife who is divorcing, it's Pasul. So now the Mishnah says, being the third pair, kol get shalom isha pasul. All right, if it wasn't written for the, for that woman, it's pasul. Kate side, and now he gives four four um, progressive examples. We'll see what I mean by that. Kate side, hayal ver bashuk. The guy's walking in the marketplace with shama kol asofrim makrim, and he overhears a sofer, meaning a scribe's teacher. Uh, reading, dictating to his students. In other words, what's happening? It's a writing exercise. He's, he's giving them an example. Ish ploni migaresh ploni malcolm ploni. Chaim from Van Eyes divorces his wife, Vulinsa. Right? And they're all writing it. And the guy walks in and says, Guess what? I'm from Van Eyes. My name is Chaim. My wife's from the Spinza. Can I buy one of those git? The answer is Pasula Garesh You can't use it. Even though it's got all the right information. Even more than that. So Chaim from Van Eyes writes again to divorce his wife, Blincha. He changes his mind because Blincha made some good Blinches for him. And he changes his mind. So he decides not to divorce her. And he finds another guy down the street on Van Owen Avenue named Chaim, whose wife happens to be Blincha. And the guy says, you know what? I was looking for a sofa. I want to divorce my wife. So he says, Right? Pasul Garish, but you can't use it. I'll add to that. Chaim has two blinches. One's a cheese blinch and one's a blueberry blinch, but he's got two blinches. Two wives named blinches. I don't know how I got that name, but okay. He decided to divorce Big Blincha. And after he wrote it, he maybe got afraid of Big Blincha or he changed his mind. He decided he's going to divorce instead. Small blincha, loy garish botaktana. Why not? He wrote it. He's the guy who's divorcing it. He wrote it for the purpose of get. Why can't he divorce little blincha with? It's written for big blincha. Exactly. 
He told the sofa, right? This for Big Blinche, even though it just says Blinche. It doesn't have Blinche with a big B or something, right? But, and it doesn't have to be big in the sense it should be the older one or however you distinguish them. Now, Yoter Mikain, here's the last case. Amar Lavlar, Tov Ezo Sheret Se'agarish, this is building on the last case. Chaim has two Blinches. And he says, I just have one Blinch too many. So I got to divorce one of them. I'm not sure which. So write me a get, which is sort of open-ended, meaning put all the na names in there. I'm not sure which blinch I want. And so then tonight, I'll, they'll each make dinner, and whoever makes the worst dinner, I'll do, you know, whatever crazy thing he has, right? You can't use it. Okay, now, the Gemara immediately, the very first Gemara here, which is source nine in the Bavli, goes through it, and it says, why are these cases scaffolded the way they are? Because in the first case, it was written not for purpose of get at all. It was a writing exercise. So that I understand why it's no good. But in the second case, it was written for a get. Maybe it should be good. Why is it no good in the second case? Because it wasn't written for that man. Okay. But in the third case, it was written for that man just for a different wife. So the answer is asked to be written for the right wife. Fine. But what's the last case about? The last case is about Vesef Palamali HaKamash Palan Ain Breira. It's teaching us that we do not allow for Breira. What does Breira mean? Retroactive designation. In other words, I'm going to do an open-ended act, and then afterwards, I'm going to retroactively identify what I meant by that act. We say that doesn't work. So therefore, you can't write Blinsha when there's two Blinshas, and you, don't, and you haven't said which one you're going to divorce, and say, because you're not going to write it any differently, you can't write it and say, and now, an hour from now, I'm going to tell you what I meant an hour ago. Doesn't work. All right. However, look at the Talmud Yerushalmi in the same place. So, by the way, the Yerushalmi, I want you to see, look how much bigger the Bavli is. Same thing here. And the Yerushalmi, classic, gets, cuts right to the core quickly. So, it's a, a teacher who's, who's giving them a writing exercise. Why is the second case more? By the way, it's the same thinking as the Bavli. It's just doing it much quicker. So in the first case, it wasn't written as a, for a get. Here, it's written for a get. Why the third case? The answer is because here it was written for that right man, just a different woman. Why the third case? I mean, the fourth case. Why is the fourth case no good? Now, on the Bible, we said, because ain't Brera. What do they say in the Yerushalmi? They don't use the word Brera. They never use the word Brera, which we discovered with our little picture. It wasn't written to divorce her at when it was written which ends up being the same thing, but without the, the conceptual gymnastics of, of Brera, instead of simply saying, when you write the get, it has to be in order to divorce this woman. It can't be left open-ended and later you determine who it is. Okay? So we're now getting a, a sense of what Brera is. Brera is the following problem. When I have a, a bunch of information coming in, a bunch of things coming in and they come into a big pot i cannot now identify any item in that as being from its original source which source it came from 
So I can't say, well, I've got two women here and they're both blinches and the get says blinch. And so now I'm going to say that an hour ago, I meant that one. Right. Or I can't say there's all this money in here and I'm going to pull out any four shkalim and I'm going to now say those four shkalim belong to her. Okay. Next case. And this, by the way, is the famous case of Abreira in the, in the, in the Shas. Kutim. Kutim are the Shomronim. The Shomronim in the times of the Mishnah were regarded as being legitimate Jews who were very scrupulous about some things and very lax about others. And Chazal had disagreements about whether you could trust them on this or that or the other. There's an opinion, famous opinion of Shem Gamliel. You could use their matzah at the Seder. Right? And so one of the things we know that they were scrupulous about was separating Trumot and Masrot, but we know they were lax about selling things to other people that didn't have Trumot and Masrot taken. All right. So now, if I go and buy wine from the Kutim, now this Mishnah is missing something, as you'll see. The two lugim, the two measures that I'm going to take. Now, let's say there's 100 lugim. 2% is an average take for truma. So the Mishnah says very simply, I take a barrel of wine and I say, I'm going to leave 2% over for the Kohanim. Now, wine, of course, is a big mishmash. I'm going to leave 2% for the Kohanim. I'm going to leave another 10% for Masa Rishon, and I'll leave 10% of what's left after that for Masa Shani, and then you can drink, 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 and just get down to when you've only drunk 79%. As long as there's 21% left, then you give it out to the proper people. All right, that's the statement. However, there's something weird about the statement is why don't you just give Trumo to Masa at the beginning? So the Tosefta clarifies it. Meaning you bought it from them just before Shabbat and you didn't have time to take Trumot to Masrot and you're not allowed to separate Trumot to Masrot on Shabbat. That's the problem. Omer, we have the same, same exact thing. And we find out that this is the very Rabbeir. This mission is only quarter of Rabbeir. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Shimon, Osirin. They disagree. They say you're not allowed to do it. Right? Now, why do we think they're not, they say you're not allowed to do it? What is this a case of? I've got 100 gallons of wine in the barrel. And I now say at the end, I'm going to take out 2%. That'll be the truma. Why is that a, why is that a problem? Why would anybody say that's a problem? Why? It's Brayer. Because you didn't Because you didn't decide in advance exactly which of the wine was going to be separated out. Exactly. Yeah. I drank first, and then at the end, I said, oh, retroactively, that's the 2% I had in mind. It seems like a braver problem, right? So the problem is that in the Tosefta and the Mishnah, the word braver is never used, and it's unclear whether the concept was even being played with, because here it becomes a practical thing. Amrul the Reb Meir, the three rabbis said to Reb Meir, who said it's Osir, she'im yibakan nudo, don't you agree that if the guy drinks the 79% on Shabbos, and of course he can't separate till after Shabbos, and Shabbos afternoon, somebody knocks the barrel and breaks this, the valve and the whole thing spills out, that now, every, now retroactively, everything he drank was Tevel. Amar Lahem Shibaka, Ramir says, things like that don't normally happen. And I'm not going to prohibit the thing because it might happen. All right, so now they're disagreeing about something that has nothing to do with Brera. Um, 
However, the Gemara, as we're going to see towards the end of the year, is actually going to invoke it. I'm going to actually skip now to our sugya. Um, I can't because this the sugya of Eruvin is, is central to our sugya. Okay, last preface as usual with the shiur, 50, uh, 50 minutes worth of the shiur are prep and the last 10 of the shiur, but that's what we need. What's an Eruv? A mixture. Oh, no, 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 you got to hear my best answer. What's the best answer? Come on. It depends. Depends. And here it depends on what kind of Eruv I'm talking about. Right? Okay. So how many different Eruvin are there? Um, Eruv Tafshulin. That's one. Okay. I'm good. That's one. Anything else? Eruv Chatserot. Eruv Chatserot, good. Right? And by the way, we generally, like last Shabbos, we did not donate to the Eruv Tafshulin fund. Just so you're clear. Right? Eruv LA is not like, you know, an egg on a piece of bread. Yeah. Uh, maybe, but that's something else. What's the third? Okay, so this is what the, what the one where you are on the border and you want yeah, to exactly. you're Kuhlman. in the yeah. Kuhlman. Good. Okay, good. So now we have three kinds of Aruvin. The word Aruv, like Bill says correctly, is a mixture. And what you're doing with every Aruv is you're mixing things up. Aruv Tashilin, you are combining the cooking you're doing on um Erev Yom Tov with the cooking you're doing on Yom Tov all for Shabbat. Not our main concern here. Erev Chatserot, you are mixing all of the ownership of the property so that it becomes a single property. Remember, an Erev is not a fence, it's not a wire, it's not a website. An Erev is food, which is used to define common ownership, but it has to be within a walled area, so there you get the, the external piece. The Erev we're talking about here is Erev Tchumen. And here's the problem, and I'll lay it out for you. Mayor, where do you live? Allentown, Pennsylvania. Allentown, Pennsylvania. So I, I don't know Allentown well enough to be able to use any examples. Uh, I'm going to use LA examples and you follow. And the examples that we play with here, um, there are three neighborhoods that are settled between the Santa Monica Mountains and Palos Verdes. There's only three neighborhoods that exist. Everything else is wild, jungle, etc. Right? And one neighborhood is Venice. One neighborhood is Beverly Wood. One neighborhood is Hancock Park. Okay. And there are 3,000 amot from the edge of Beverly Wood to the edge of Hancock Park. And from the other edge of Beverly Wood, which is National and Beverwill, uh, Castle Heights, there are 3,000 amot to the edge of Venice, which is uh, Rose Avenue and Lincoln or something. All right, I'm just making up the numbers. All right, now, I have a, let's start with something simple. I have a friend who's making a bar mitzvah in Venice on Shabbos. But I give a shear Friday night and I want to be home with my family Friday night, so I'm going to walk over there Shabbos morning. Can I just walk over there Shabbos morning? No, I can't. Why not? You can only go 2,000. Because I'm violating Tchum. I'm going more That's than 2,000. Yeah. Right. So what I can do is I can reestablish my home at a fictitious place which is at National and Sepulveda. And then I have 2,000 amot from National and Sepulveda in each direction, like a radius. So 2,000 amot from there west will get me into inside Venice. And 2,000 amot from there east will get me into Beverlywood, northeast, get me into Beverlywood. So I can go on Friday afternoon, put down some food, 
somewhere a little bit, a little secure. Friday afternoon, make a bracha, put it down and identify, and I say, this is my home. And then I cannot walk in one step past Crescent Heights and Olympic, which is the end of, in the other direction, but I can walk all the way to Venice in that direction, okay? Good, that's an Erev Tchumen. What happens if um, I find out that my Rebbe is coming to town and he's coming to speak in one of the other two neighborhoods, but I don't know which. And I'm going to find out Friday night. Friday night, somebody's going to walk in late and say, your Rebbe just arrived in Hancock Park and he's speaking there, or in Venice, he's speaking there. So but here we go. A person can make a condition and say, right? Um, well, that's one example. Let's do the second example in Mishnah in, in Vav. So I say, oh, if my Rebbe is coming to Hancock Park, then my Eruv is the one on the east side. If he's coming to Venice, my Eruv is the one on the west side. I put down two on Friday, and now on Shabbat, I'm retroactively determining which one I meant. I can't have two homes. What happens if uh, if I have one Rebbe who goes here and another Rebbe who goes there, I could say, I'll decide on the spot which one I want to use. Let's say it turns out it was all smoke and mirrors and nobody's coming to town. Then, then both may have been or nothing and I'm, I have my own residence, right? Which means I can go 2,000 I'm on outside, but not fully in either direction. All right. Rebbe Yehuda Omer. Rabbi Huda in the Mishnah doesn't say anything that dramatic. He says, if one of those two Chachamim was your own Rebbe, then that's where you should go. All right, because that's where we assume you'd want it. But if both of them are your Rebbeim, then it's up to you. He doesn't seem to add much. However, in the Tosefta, he does. A person cannot make a Tanai except in the following two ways. He could say, if the Chacham comes to the east side, my Erev is on the east, and if the west to the west. This contradicts what he just said, because now suddenly he becomes friendly with everybody. If he comes to both sides, I'll decide where to go. Right? So the commentaries on the Tosef to say this line really belongs beforehand and is not reviewed as opinion. Etc. Alright, where is this all coming from? Because of the following statement, there was a Chacham named Ayo who, who, um, in, who had a tradition from Yehuda, who quoted him as, follow, as, as follows, and ex, we explained it as follows. Why does Rabbi Yehuda say that if he comes from both sides, I can't decide which one? Because Ein Brera. Zubina says you can't do Brera. You can't say this afternoon, the real Eruv I meant was that one, and the other one was nothing. You can't turn around and re redefine what you did. So your first two cases is the same thing. You're also deciding Friday night which one you meant. Oh, Rabbi Yochanan solves it all. You didn't say, I'm going to now determine. What you're saying is, I'm making a condition. 
where, where if I find out that the Chacham arrived on Friday, then that means that's the one I want. So if the Chacham already arrived before Shabbat, now it's not a Brera issue anymore. It's just simply a condition. Okay? And now, um, right, so we, so they try to invoke this Mishnah to prove that Rabbi Yehuda does not accept Brera, which is why where this is the position we're taking. The Rabbi Yehuda rejects the Eruv that you, you post-determine retroactively. All right, good. So now let's take a look at our sugya and see how all of this comes together. And again, like I said, the you know the first yeah exactly it's, uh, forty-nine minutes on prep. We're going to bring this plan home. All right, here's the here's the gemara, and now you got all the background you need. The Mishnah said uh, that the um, that the kohen gadol would come out to the kodesh and put the uh, the uh, dam hasair in a second basin. And then pick up the Dhamma par. And Rabbi Yudha said, no, there's only one base. Okay, let's see the discussion. Tanatam. We have a Mishnah that you now all know very well. Right? Rabbi Yudha, remember, said, this is the Brita, said there were no boxes for obligatory birds because of mixture. What's the problem with the mixture? So we know already where this goes. Because we've already read ahead. <laughs> that passage added to the Shalom is based on the rest of this. He said, no, the problem is they might mix in obligatory coins with voluntary coins. So let's just have it be all voluntary. Watch this. Abayi says, I don't get it. Why don't you put two boxes and write on the boxes? If I have an obligation, I put it into the chet. If I don't have an obligation, I put it into the nun. Fight the gamaisa. It's simple. The answer is, watch this thing. Rabbi Yehuda, late lake tiva. Rabbi Yehuda does not accept the idea of writing in the Beit HaMikdash. Not because of a problem with writing. The idea is that identifying something by writing doesn't work in the Beit HaMikdash because people aren't paying attention. It's a weird idea, and it's totally wrong, as you'll see. The nun, Rabbi Yehuda, mer, Hashem, ela kena chad novad. So they quote Armish to prove that Rabbi Yudah doesn't allow for writing. Why? Trey my time alone. Why doesn't Rabbi Yudah allow for two basins? In our case, he shouldn't have machalfi because he might take the wrong dumb. If you have them both there, he might take the wrong dumb first and mess everything up. Benavi Trey, so make two basins. Have a big pay and a big sin. That's all you need. Hello, the Rabbi Yudah, it must be Rabbi Yudah. Now we're saying, why does Rabbi Yudah say you can't have two basins? Because you might get mixed up. And I don't think we can rely on the fact that it was written a certain way. And you all know where this is coming. We challenged this from the Mishnah that we the Tosefta that we saw, where he said there were 13 boxes in the Beit HaMikdash. There was a Mishnah. And each one had stuff written on it. And that way you knew what that money was donated for. And it's all authored by Rabbi Yudah. Rabbi Yudah certainly says... Yes, you write on in, uh, you write on uh, things in the Beit Hamikdash, and you rely on what's written, and rely that somebody puts them in there. That's what they meant. So, so now we're back to square one. Why didn't they have two basins? You know what? Why Rabbi Huda says that they he doesn't allow um, um, obligatory offerings here. He says, because because somebody might die. Well, we talked about this. 
Since when do we suddenly raise the concern somebody might die? We saw this. If somebody says it sends a Corbin to Shalayim, and three months later the agent gets to Shalayim, we offer it, assuming the guy's alive. We saw this already. You know where we saw this? We saw this right here in this passage from the, well, in this note on the side of the Yerushalmi. You know where that note came from? It came from Arsugya. It came from Arsugya. I was just uh, interviewing a young man who wants to join our Beit Midrash next year, inshallah. And I said to him, you know, being a, being a Talmud in a Beit Midrash means you have to be a little bit or a lot be a detective. And you got to really like being a detective and solving mysteries and puzzles. Right? So, and he got excited about that. All right. So now the question is, remember we, we saw this, the answer is, why? so why don't we just take out the four coins of the guy who died or the woman who died and throw them out and use the rest? The answer is Rebuta does not accept Brera. How do we know Rebuta doesn't accept Brera? Because what's his position on the wine? You can't drink the wine and say, later on, I'll take Truma Tomasro, right? So you see, it says there's no Brera. That's not why. Remember what he said to a mayor? He said, you can't do the Truma Tomasro in advance because the valve might break. And after you drank all that stuff, your trumot masro might get spilled out, which means retroactively it was tabel. So he said, how do we know that Rabbi Yoda doesn't accept Breira? Because of his position about Eruv. He said, you can't set up two Eruvin and then turn around and say, oh, it's Friday night. You can't turn around and say, the one I meant earlier was that. Right? And so, and they bring close the whole discussion from Eruvin. Now, by the way, what you're seeing here is cross-fertilization. You're seeing sugyot in Eruvin that now show up in Yoma. A sugya about Tamai that shows up, by the way, in Gitten also, and in Yoma, and, and, uh, and Yoma here, and in several other places, about the valves and the, and the wine. And then what you saw at the beginning was that the Magia, the, the glosser, who is not the same person, as you can see, who wrote the Ketavia, the fellow who wrote the Ketavia Leiden in 1289 in Italy, is not the person who wrote this margin note. You can see it from the writing. But this margin note is simply a quote from the Bavli. And what happened? When they went to print the Yerushalmi, they stuck it in. It became part of the text. And if you're a little sensitive to the language of the Yerushalmi, you realize that there's a foreign implant. It doesn't belong here. The Yerushalmi does not accept this idea. It does not use the principle of Brera at all. Now, what we found over the course of this almost hour is the following. And then I'm going to re review the whole piece. Is the issue of Brera which for our purposes means retroactive designation. I did a certain act and I left it open-ended. And after the fact, I then determined what I meant by that act, where I wanted those coins to go, which wife I wanted to be included in that, which wine I wanted to be the Toronto Tomas wrote, which direction I want, which Eruv wrote what I wanted to my real Eruv. You're either going to say Yesh Brera or Ein Brera. Yesh Brera means you have the power to do that. Ein Brera means you don't have the power to do that. However, it's important to note that that entire discussion does not take place in the Mishnah or in the Tosefta. The, Mishnah, the, the, the discussion does not take place until a very late time in the Talmud Bavli. And it does not exist even once in the Talmud Yerushalmi. And even in a place where the Talmud Yerushalmi would easily say it, like here in Gitin, when the guy writes the get for his two wives and says, later I'll determine which one it is, it doesn't invoke Brera. It rather says, 
When you write the get, it has to be intended for that woman at the time that you write it. So, which means, by the way, that Brayram may be a later development in Bavel that then becomes prominent in so many different areas of halacha. Um, and I'll give you an a, a, a wild example of this. A man dies. Happens all the time. Man leaves his estate to his five sons. Okay. Um, the five sons then divide the estate up. Okay. What's the status of their division? Are we going to say that, that if they are, sorry, if they, then, then they become partners and they pool the resources. Are you going to now say that you can identify and separate out their original, their partnership based on Brera and identifying what was their original um, uh, portion and original contribution? Are you going to say, no, once the thing becomes a mix, it becomes a mix, and there's no way to retroactively de de define it. It's an issue in Mamanot, it's an issue in Isurim, it's an issue in Kashrut, as we saw with Tamai, it's an issue in Eruvin, it's an issue in um, uh, in uh, in our case with uh, with the Kinim, with the, with the money in the Beit HaMikdash. It's something that really speaks along, uh, across uh, lots, of lots of different disciplines. But the Sugya of Brera is one, as I said, that only shows up here and only shows up relatively late. So the question is, now we're going to play a little Brera. We're going to turn around and say, now, can we now say, turning back, that this is what Rabbi Yehuda actually had in mind, and Rabbi Yehuda was operating with the principle of Brera? Are we saying Rabbi Yehuda said what he said, and the conceptual framework that we're laying on it is a conceptual framework of Brera? In other words, we're engaging in Brera. We are retroactively defining what Rabbi Yehuda meant. Just kind of a little bit of twist of irony in that whole thing. Okay, so that's our piece of Brei Ra. Next week, we're going to go on to a sugi. We'll see which one uh, that's um, relevant to uh, you know what we're doing in the in the daf at the time. Um,